0: Can Europe withstand a cold winter without rolling blackouts? That's what we were solving for. That's where our price forecasts were coming from. And we think Europe can do it. When we get asked, well, are we going to need to see rationing in Europe to get through it? It's not in our base case. It's not something we see as necessary under average temperatures. The risk is... The balance is the result of a lot of moving parts, right? Right now, for example, LNG imports play a massive role in helping storage go where it needs to go. So if LNG starts to disappoint, that puts the burden of adjustment much more so on demand destruction. And if that demand elasticity isn't there, then you're in trouble. And that's when rationing becomes more of
1: a risk. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote?
2: Welcome to Winter is Coming on Smarter Markets, I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Samantha Dart, Head of Natural Gas Research at Goldman Sachs. Sam will lead off our series discussing the outlook for natural gas and LNG this winter and beyond in the face of all that has happened and is happening in Europe. Hello, Sam. Welcome to Smarter Markets.
0: Yeah, hey, Dave, it's great to have you.
2: Well, it's so great to have you here to talk with today because, you know, there's so much to discuss. And honestly, I don't know where to begin. What are the words to describe the level of natural gas prices that we have seen in Europe? They've recently backed off, but it's been over 315 euros per megawatt hour. For you know those of us not in Europe, that's over $90 in MMBTU, right? So, the U.S. is around nine. <laughs> so, 10 times what we're paying in the U.S. and on a, you know, The equivalent basis to a barrel of oil, that's like well over $500 a barrel. I mean, it's really astonishing. I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, it has potentially devastating consequences for people in Europe and around the world over the course of the coming winter. So I was hoping, you know, you could kick us off by helping us understand, you know, the severity of the shortfall of natural gas in Europe that's helping to drive these prices. And like, is this simply the decline in Russian supplies following the invasion of Ukraine or what else is going on?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to remember that the the drop in Russian supplies to the region, it started before the war. It started in late fall last year. And at the time, it felt like something transient that maybe if Nord Stream 2 was approved. They would, you know, bring back volumes. But of course, once the war started, Nord Stream 2 moved off the table and those cuts became really permanent. And at that time for Gazprom, it made a lot of sense, even just economically, because the cuts that they had in volume were way compensated for the increasing prices. Right. So economically it made sense. Politically, it made sense for them. And things just got worse and worse supply wise after that. And it matters because, I mean, for those who don't follow natural gas markets closely. Right. I mean, this is a, a fuel primarily used for heating in the winter in the northern hemisphere. So. Even though we're still in summer, the whole market is focused on building enough storage so that you have enough to draw down from in winter when demand is incredibly high. So that's what keeps prices high, not just during winter times, but right now. In fact, I would expect the highest point in prices to be right now in summer when you need to get the job done, you need to build storage and you have a massive hole in your balance. You have... The the, the amount, just to give you a sense of order of magnitude here, the amount of supply that we normally see from Russia in Northwest Europe during the winter is the equivalent of nearly 20% of total winter consumption. Wow. So it's not something that you can just turn to your neighbor and say, hey, can you send me a little bit more via pipeline? You don't have that type of spare capacity. In fact, you don't have spare capacity anywhere. That's part of the problem also. Let's go around, right? Let's look at the UK. The UK gas production has been in slow decline for years. Norway has been flat. I mean, they're investing, but they're investing to prevent declines. Netherlands is in decline. E&I has talked to Algeria about increasing supply, but these are moderate volumes by 2024. And then we turn to LNG, It's also not a market that can deliver additional capacity overnight. These are projects that take years to get built. So what you have today is all you got, which is why Europe ends up having to solve the problem by pricing high enough to attract LNG away from everybody else and and towards the continent so that it can complement their balances a little bit.
2: And that's so amazing that 20% of consumption number like cuz yeah if you think about how much does demand normally change year to year how much does supply grow year to year it's a few percent it's not 20% that's just yeah. it's it's amazing and one thing i love about you know from an analyst perspective of looking at the natural gas market is that the the margins of adjustment to try to adjust to imbalances are so clear and so visible, like, right, you see a gas plant turn off and a coal plant turn on, and you can watch all these economic adjustments occur. And there are many levers that can be pulled to bring the market into balance. I don't know if there's enough to bring a market 20% (laughs) back in balance, but I was curious, what adjustments has the market been using or what levers has it been pulling to try to balance supply and demand given the shortfall of gas coming in from Russia And what, if any, adjustments remain that can still be made?
0: Yeah, so when it comes to natural gas markets, usually your first lever of adjustment will be the substitution between gas and coal. And in the case of Europe, this has been playing out since last summer, because even before Russia cut any gas, If you go back to the spring of 2021, it was so incredibly cold in Northwest Europe that gas started to move above coal back then. Mm. So that's where that substitution away from gas and towards coal got started in Europe. And then it couldn't stop because after the cold weather in the spring, you had supply disruptions in LNG in the summer, followed by then the initial Russian cuts in the fall that we already talked about. So gas has been more expensive than coal since last summer, which means that everybody that could have switched away from gas towards coal, they've already done that. Mm. So when the Russian crisis started and people asked, well, can't you switch to other fields? It's like, dude, we've been doing this for months. It's not anything new. And then gas became more expensive than oil. That was the new thing that we saw Later in the fall, but oil fire generation was never built to be base load in Europe, right? Those generators, they were built to function for a few hours a day, a couple of days at a time. So folks don't usually even have fuel storage on site in size to be able to keep that up. So it, it, right. it's,
2: these are, yeah.
0: So it, it's been
2: I was saying These are typically like the backup diesel generators.
0: Exactly. Is that right? Exactly. Like emergency power, emergency yeah. power. That's the right word, right? So you can't work as base load. So you first go into coal, then you go into oil. And then when there is nothing left on the generation side, you have to go to industrial demand destruction. And that was a price discovery process. We didn't know what the price threshold was, so prices kept going up and up and up. And we were able to observe that when TTF, the benchmark for European natural gas prices, when that crossed 75 euros a megawatt hour, that's when we started seeing that response on the industrial demand side. And the first guys to respond were the fertilizer producers because of the component of natural gas in their total cost of production.
2: Right and I'm glad you brought up that the industrial demand destruction occurs first in fertilizer because then people have to think okay less fertilizer less food and so now it's this horrendous trade-off between do we freeze in the winter or starve in the spring or summer which is it is really incredible and you know I know there's been this big scramble as you said to fill up inventories before winter in Europe even the governments are setting different goals. I think the EU has an 80% full storage goal, Germany 95% by November. But of course, what matters isn't how much you start the winter with as much as are you going to have enough to get through the winter. And I'm curious how you're thinking about those probabilities that, you know, even if Europe gets to reasonably full, and I think it looks like they should, correct me if I'm wrong. What are the probabilities that Europe will have enough natural gas and storage to make it through the winter without exhausting those supplies?
0: Yeah, so when we put together our price framework, what we did was to solve for certain levels of storage. So for summer, for example, we solved for 90% full for the region. So how high do prices need to go to make sure that there is enough demand destruction so that storage builds appropriately to get to that 90% figure. Why is that? Well, because if you start the winter at 90%, it's a lot easier to manage winter than if you start at 80. I know the EU target is 80, as you pointed out, that's too low. That's just not enough because that, that would just create panic in the winter, you'd be too exposed. So in our framework, And by the way, this was also consistent with the way that the market was pricing you. It didn't look like you was pricing to reach 80, which was a much easier target. By the way, we're there now. We're at 80% of full now. Is that enough? It's not. But as you mentioned, yes, I agree that we're on track to get to 90% full And for the end of winter, we solved for 20% full. And the reason is 20% full is enough to get you through a one standard deviation, colder than average winter event and still leaves you a bit of a buffer. So can Europe withstand a cold winter without rolling blackouts? That's what we were solving for. That's where our price forecasts were coming from. And we think Europe can do it when we get asked, well, are we going to need to see rationing in Europe to get through it? It's not in our base case. It's not something we see as necessary under average temperatures. The risk is, for example, the balance is the result of a lot of moving parts, right? Right now, for example, LNG imports play a massive role in helping storage go where it needs to go. So if LNG starts to disappoint, That puts the burden of adjustment much more so on demand destruction. And if that demand elasticity isn't there, then you're in trouble. And that's when rationing becomes more of a risk. And I mentioned demand elasticity because this is not just a linear relationship necessarily. When prices started to go above that threshold that I mentioned, the 75 euros a megawatt hour, yes, we started to see a lot of response on the industrial side, a lot of demand curtailments, but the summer, that response slowed down. And it makes sense, right? If you think, okay, low hanging fruit goes first, And now we're seeing guys that are hedged or guys that have been able to pass through the higher costs that they've seen on on the production side to their end users. So you don't see as much of an elasticity as we saw in the beginning of the process. So that's a real risk that we need to consider going forward. As we go into the winter, should anything look tighter than what we expect We need demand to respond to prices. And if it doesn't, that's where rationing goes in. But it's not in our base case at the moment.
2: Right. And by rationing, I imagine you mean like government rationing as opposed to high price causing people to cut back. Is that right?
0: Exactly. Government driven demand destruction. You know, you turn to your auto producer and say, you know what, you're going to have to stop for a few weeks because we just don't have the energy for you right now.
2: All right. So I want to make sure I I heard this correctly. So you are saying that given the the levers that have been pulled and are priced to be pulled, probably a one standard deviation colder than normal winter. So a reasonably cold winter, but not an extremely cold winter, you could probably ride out and still be above 20% inventory at the end of the the winter. Is that right? And then if it gets colder than that, we'll need to pull more levers.
0: So the 20% is... The, the level of storage that would be high enough to so for you to draw down from uh, okay. through a cold winter. So you would not end at 20% if you have the colder than average winter, you would end at 20% if you have an average winter. Oh, but okay. can that 20% get you through a cold winter and still leave you a buffer? Yes.
2: Okay. Yeah. I'd like a bigger buffer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm curious. You know, you talked about on the – I imagine a lot of the levers will have to remain pulled. So, what we should expect to see the coal-fired plants going throughout the winter. We should expect diesel-fired generators running when they can, where they can. And I, I imagine a cutback on fertilizer production. But the prices we're seeing today, are they – inducing even higher forms of demand destruction beyond, you know, the fertilizer plants, which I know are often the first places you see a a real demand pullback from the industrial side.
0: Yeah. So the, the industrial sector is where you probably see the most response to prices because they buy in the wholesale market, they get the impact directly. But residential users will still suffer from it, right? not as directly as industrial consumers, but you have a massive pass-through of the cost. The UK government just announced that they were raising the cap of energy costs for end users. So energy bills are going to be a lot higher than in the past, and yes, this is likely to generate a response as well. With heating demand It's not something that we get to test versus prices, because again, prices were never this high to cause a a reaction like that. Whenever you model heating demand for natural gas, you can explain pretty much all of it with weather. So this response to price is something that we're going to discover, especially over the winter months. But we've already observed that in the shoulder months. So since late March, March is not that cold in North Ashira compared to North America. So since March, we started to see weather-adjusted residential demand showing up lower than what we would have expected. So you're already seeing to some extent that response on the residential demand side as well. And this will certainly help through winter.
2: Yeah, and I think much like we're accustomed to when the price of gasoline goes up at the pump, and, you know, people need to get the gas, they need to get their car, need to get to work, and then they have to take that spending out of other items. I imagine we'll see that even more so over the course of the winter because people need to heat their homes. That's the first bill you pay. And then after that, you know, it'll have that ripple-through effect. I wanted to ask you in terms of kind of the ripple-through effects, we've been talking about Europe a lot, and you've mentioned the importance of US LNG coming into Europe to help alleviate some of the strain and I saw the other day that I think the U.S. was the leading exporter of LNG this year. So that's, that's quite a change in the market. And of course, Europe's increasingly connected to both the U.S. and Asian natural gas markets by LNG. And those outflows of LNG have helped push U.S. gas prices up to that you know $9 in MMBTU and over level. So I wanted to ask you, how do you see the spillover of the supply shortfall in Europe impacting the U.S. and Asian markets this winter?
0: When it comes to the US, I would say that the link shows up a lot more in the medium to long term than near term. And and the reason is when you look at how much gas the US can send Europe, it's limited by existing liquefaction capacity, right? You can't just go to a port, oh, let me just put this into a a regular tanker and send it out, you really have to liquefy that natural gas, put it in a specialized tanker and send it over. So you can only do as much as your liquefaction capacity and you cannot build it overnight. The fastest you can do a decent sized train is two and a half years, as we've seen in the market in, in recent years. So this is not something that can change in the very near term. And because the variable cost of production of LNG is so low, these guys are already producing and exporting everything that they can. So European gas prices can be at $15 an MMBTU or 35 or 55 or 90, as you pointed out, and the US is going to export exactly the same. It's in the money to go and it goes. So the near term link on, on the fundamental Side is really not there that visibly, but there is a massive link down the line because global gas prices this high relative to US LNG costs create a pretty significant incentive for folks to sign additional long term contracts. Hey, instead of being exposed to this high European gas price, I'm going to sign a contract with a US facility and pay much lower prices for the next 15 20 years. And this is exactly what we've seen. Global gas prices are so high that the number of long-term contracts being signed, and to be fair, not just with U.S. facilities, but with other facilities around the world, contracts keep popping up and popping up and popping up. That's what these incentives end up generating. So... The result of that is that down the line we're going to see more of these liquefaction facilities reaching financing and getting built and showing up. So your natural gas demand in the U.S. over time will grow more and more and more to the point where I would say today the main driver of natural gas demand growth in the U.S. has become LNG export capacity. That's it. Like it's no longer a generation. It's no longer. It's about LNG. And when we're thinking about how how to think about prices, be it in the near term or longer term, what we have in the back of our minds is always okay. How much production is going to be growing versus LNG export capacity? Those two are going to set your price.
2: Yeah, that, that's such a, a hugely important statement, and I love the way you said it. That. I'm going to get it wrong, but you said the the main source of demand growth in the United States is going to be LNG. And it's just because like recently in the news with the Freeport LNG facility, I think it's a great example of when people believe it's going to come back online and more LNG can be shipped out, you see the US gas price go up because it's going to be less in the US. And then when it's, oh no, it's going to be shut longer, the price goes down. And I think psychologically, the US isn't used to living in a global gas market. And, you know, we've had a whole lot of gas coming out of the shale revolution for years, and people have gotten used to like low natural gas prices. And I'm sure there's feelings of solidarity with the people in Europe. But to be honest, I think the U.S. consumers would be in shock to realize that, you know, if we had to compete and there were unlimited facilities to move U.S. gas to Europe, we might not be pricing 90, but we'd be pricing well above nine. (laughs)
0: Well, but but that's not necessarily the case, right? Because again, it goes back to how much LNG export capacity grows in the US relative to production. You can add another 12 BCF a day of export capacity, which is what we expect to see before the end of the decade out of the US. But if you grow US natural gas production by 13, you're fine, right? So right. it's not just one side. And We do get asked that a lot. Is the U.S. just going to price as a net back to the rest of the world? And I think the answer is no, not on a sustainable basis, because the U.S. has a functioning supply curve. It has the resource to develop, whereas Europe really doesn't. Europe is vulnerable to whatever global LNG supply is doing. Even right now, when we look at the crisis that the region is going through and we look ahead to 2023, the picture doesn't change very much. In 24. it doesn't change very much. It does change from 2025 in our view because there is a lot of new liquefaction capacity globally coming on. So it's going to be easier for Europe to fill storage without having to destroy industrial demand. So for Europe, they are vulnerable to whatever is happening in global LNG supplies. When it's a new wave of facilities coming on, they can start a new bearish cycle. And when that wave is ended, they start a bullish cycle. The U.S. is different. It has a supply curve. It can develop resources. The question is, at what cost? And it's, it's a relevant question, right? Because if we go back to the days of 2018, 2019, Appalachia used to be the single biggest contributor of U.S. natural gas production growth. And Appalachia is bottlenecked. So that is over. So you need to go to the next best guy. You go to the next lowest marginal cost of production. At the moment, that would be core Hainesville. But if you, again, look ahead and think of, oh, we're going to get another 12 BCF a day of LNG export capacity. Can core Hainesville deliver that? Probably not. So you're going to have to go a little bit higher along that supply curve, but you have one you have resources to develop. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that the U.S. will be sustainably pricing as a net back to the rest of the world.
2: I really, really want to come back to the point about the investment, both in the U.S. and Europe, because it is so important. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you, where does Asia fit into all this? Because I feel like it wasn't very long ago, Asia was the big source for LNG demand, (laughs) And also a a pretty sizable source of supply. And now it's an afterthought. What is going on?
0: So Asia, in a normal year, right, uh, before this European crisis, Asia would routinely represent 70% plus of global LNG consumption. So because it only produces... About a third of global LNG supplies, Asia would always price at a premium to Europe to make sure that they attracted enough LNG cargoes away from the Atlantic basin towards the Pacific and problem solved, right? That was the normal. And this year it's different because Europe can't afford to lose those cargoes. In fact, Europe needs to make sure it gets more than what the Atlantic Basin can supply. So Europe starting to price above Asia prices, and this turned things around. And instead of Asia demand just growing as it planned to do, it had to drop. You see the, the the way to solve this is you see places like Pakistan and Bangladesh having to go through rolling blackouts because they can't afford spot LNG prices. So you shrink the market. Part of it is absolutely price driven. Part of it is because Europe got a little bit lucky that China wasn't active in the market this year because China can afford it. It's almost every year these days that we see the Chinese government instructing their companies, make sure you have enough commodity supplies for the winter at whatever cost. They even use this exact expression. So we know China can afford it, But because of the rolling COVID lockdowns they had over the spring, this really slowed down their economic growth this year. And industrial activity is the main driver of natural gas growth in China. It's not generation. Industrial demand for gas is nearly double what generation is over there. And it's what drives growth. So if China economic growth is sluggish that impacts their LNG demand directly. So because they are not active in the LNG market, this has left a lot of LNG available for Europe. So Europe got a bit lucky there. And there is nothing guaranteeing that this will be the case next year.
2: Yeah, and I'm curious, when do you anticipate the Chinese becoming active again? Because that could be a really big impact, right? If you're trying to wrestle LNG away from China when they're saying, pay any price. Do you expect them to be back in the market this winter, or do you think Europe has the gas from the market this winter?
0: Yeah, we have been assuming that Chinese demand for LNG would be back up year on year by this fall, but the drought situation more recently in the Sichuan region changed all that. The electricity availability is so low in the region because they rely a lot on hydro that they are having to shut down industrial activity again. So what we see in the high frequency data is that the amount of LNG China is bringing in remains exceptionally low, well below last year's levels and we recently downgraded our expected Chinese LNG imports through the fall. So we we raised our European LNG import expectations on the back of that for the fall a little bit.
2: Okay. Yeah. And I just wanted to come back for a moment to, you know, when you were saying there were rolling blackouts, I believe in Bangladesh and one other country, because earlier we were talking about, oh, Europe may get lucky and won't require government rationing. This winter, which would be things like rolling blackouts and telling car manufacturers to shut down for a while and things like that. But because of the interconnected global gas market, you are seeing it in some of the poorer countries. And I think that's what always happens, right? When you get in these energy wrestling matches, when there's just not enough to go around, the rich will make sure they get the supply they need, like China is. And the poor, you know, the market gets balanced on the backs of the poor at some point.
0: That's exactly right.
2: And I guess the the way to get around that is investment, <laughs> which brings us back to the point I wanted to follow up with you earlier. Because yeah, I mean, absolutely agree. The U.S. is in a really fortunate position that to some extent we can be uh, have some control of our own gas supply destiny. We we have the resources, we have the ability to develop. But you know, when I look at Europe, and there's been you know, of course, this scramble to get enough natural gas and inventory for the winter that seems like. They've gotten inventories into a good place. And then government policymakers have been encouraging and sometimes even demanding (laughs) more production, bringing back cold-fired plants, expediting LNG facilities, expediting LNG import facilities to help bring more gas into Europe as well. However, at the same time, many of these policymakers are also seemingly saying that this is only a temporary reprieve for the industry. like we want all this energy you know we need the gas we need the coal we need all the things we were railing against a year ago and you can do it this year but you know this is all going to go away because we need to get back to focusing on the transition to a low carbon system and firmly believe we need to transition to a lower carbon system we need to do it intelligently and we need to transition effectively so we don't have people you know not able to heat their homes in the winter but i'm curious from an investment perspective How are we going to get people to make these multi-year investments that are needed to increase production, to build LNG tankers, to build facilities, investments that typically require five, 10, 15 years or more to pay for themselves and to generate a reasonable return? How do you do that if the suspicion is that government policymakers are going to shut you down the moment the crisis seems to have passed?
0: You know, what illustrates this point really well is that even after all that's happened in Europe so far, and it's not over yet, if you talk to European governments or European industrial natural gas buyers and ask them, do you want to sign a long-term contract for LNG with the US? They will hesitate. Well, I don't know. We have the energy transition ahead of us. I don't know that I can commit to 15 to 20 years of gas buying. Can they offer a cheap contract for six years? That would be great. This is what we hear from them. I'm not even kidding. They want a contract for six years. That's not going to be enough to help finance, to your point, a new liquefaction facility. Not in the US, not anywhere in the world. So you can't solve the problem without investment that is it just doesn't happen and since the war if we rank okay where the long-term lng contracts signed since the war are where are they going to who are the buyers europe is a distant third i mean china not just china but asia as a whole is number one portfolio players are number two and european buyers distant third so even with everything that we've seen, you know, without the investment, you're just not going to get the solution. But because these other players are seeing that Europe is going to demand more gas, whether contracted or on a spot basis, they are also acting and signing those contracts for themselves. Because as you pointed out earlier, Asia was always the main source of demand growth when it comes to natural gas. We think about coal to gas substitution, and this has played out in a big way in the U.S. over the years, in Europe, but in Asia, it's very incipient. It still has ways to go. So they know their natural gas demand is going to keep growing, and Asian buyers have continued to be very active in signing those contracts. Because of that, we think that, yes, we're going to see additional liquefaction facilities built in the U.S., but Europe frankly, should be a lot more active as a part of that. And yet they still hesitate on whether they want to commit to natural gas for this long period of time or not.
2: Yeah. And I was wondering, like you mentioned earlier, you know, that there won't be enough LNG facilities coming on to really alleviate the European situation for a few years, because it just takes time to build these things. And I'm curious, you know, given that Given some of these impediments to investment, does this mean that like this crisis is going to continue well beyond this winter?
0: Yeah. Yep.
2: Short and sweet. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's 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 amazing, and you know this market really well, and so I'm curious, as all of us are, are kind of going through the fall, going through the winter, trying to see whether we're going to skate by and get lucky or, you know, whether this could turn really bad, what are you watching? And what should we all be paying attention to this winter to help us understand if the situation's getting better or getting worse?
0: So I would say beyond Russian volumes and weather, right? Which are the two obvious ones. I would say storage is the tell all it's the summary of everything happening in the market. And we're fortunate to have access to high frequency data on European storage. Everybody can see that it's publicly available. And that will tell you if storage is at the moment building at the pace that it needs to, and it has been building above average, and during the winter, how quickly it will be drawing relative to average, right? So that's the number one driver that I would say uh, needs to be watched. The second one I would mention, then, you know, not everybody will have access to that data, but LNG flows are incredibly important. Like I mentioned before, the LNG flows we've seen going into Northwest Europe this summer have been at historic highs. And it's made such a big difference in keeping storage building at the appropriate pace that any disappointment in that can be very impactful. Like I said before, if you don't have the LNG, the burden of the adjustment falls back on demand destruction, which can be a lot more painful. So I would watch demand of LNG around Asia very closely and how much is left going into Northwest Europe very closely.
2: All right. Well, thanks very much, Sam. Really appreciate you coming in. It's been great to catch up with you. It's going to be a really tough environment, and I hope we will be able to talk with you again to see how we all get through this winter.
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a challenging time.
2: Thanks again to Samantha Dart, head of natural gas research at Goldman Sachs. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please join us next week when our guest will be Daniel Jurgen, vice chairman of S&P Global and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Prize and the Quest. We hope you'll join us.
1: This episode was brought to you in part by Abax Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe. With markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, Abax Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABEX Technologies, Shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.